Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I don't know how many of you saw the finish to the Liège-Bastogne-Liège cycling race last week, but it was a wild one. A small group was alone in the final kilometer to the finish, and it was made up of some of the heaviest hitters in the sport right now. Tour de France winner Tadej Pugaccia and the runner-up in that race, Primoz Roglic, were both there. Along with one of the new phenoms in the sport, Swiss star and protege de Fabien Cancellara, Mark Hershey, and the recently newly crowned world champion, Julien Alaphilippe, also. They all played cat and mouse as they made their way along the barriers towards the finish. With about 350 meters to go, the sprint started in earnest, and with about 10 meters to go, it looked like the Frenchman Alaphilippe was going to win, so he sat up and did a victory pose. Unfortunately for him, Primoz Roglic didn't get the memo that the race was done, because he continued to sprint right until the end and nipped Alaphilippe right on the line to secure the victory and his first monument. Celebrating early is a phenomenon that isn't unique to cycling, but it seems to happen a lot in that sport. You'd think that after seeing the embarrassing results of this kind of thing so many times before, veteran cyclists of the caliber of Alaphilippe would know better. It's especially weird because in the World Championships, just like a week or so earlier when the same rider, Alaphilippe, had a really solid lead, he was continually looking behind him as he rode in the final few hundred meters, not wanting to celebrate until he was absolutely certain that his victory was safe and assured. What I took from this episode in the Liège-Bastogne-Liège race is a reminder that in our lives as age group athletes, we should remember that the same tenacity and sense of purpose displayed by Primoz Roglic should inform our own approach to training and racing. Never give up on a workout because you can never tell when that last effort is going to pay off somehow down the road. Always push your race to the end. Don't stop until you pass the finish line, not before it. There will be lots of time to celebrate after the clock has stopped, but not until that moment, every second counts. In this day and age of time trial starts, our nearest competitors are virtual. That is to say, they may have started the same race separated from us by as much as an hour or more, so the fact that we don't see them there in front of us racing for that finish line shouldn't take away from the fact that they're still there, just virtually. By racing all the way along a course, right through the finish, then we won't regret seeing ourselves being virtually passed after we have finished by someone who did that if we didn't. Alaphilippe will be back, and well, he's going to have lots of other opportunities to redeem himself. You can be sure he's not going to celebrate early like that ever again. As age groupers, we don't have the same certainty of second chances, especially in a year when there are almost no races at all. So when you get back, when you see that first start line, don't forget to embody the Roglic attitude to fight right through the finish. On the show today, Michael Bowers is a well-known small business owner in the Denver area. As the co-owner of local bike shop Campus Cycles and as a longtime cyclist and relative newcomer to triathlon, he has a devoted following of customers and friends in the sport. No one can plan for the kind of year that we're going through, but as we've heard, the bicycle industry has done particularly well in the face of this pandemic. Well, Michael joins me to talk about what 2020 has looked like from a local business perspective and to give some insights on what he sees for the future. First, though, I have a medical question to answer. Carmen wrote to me to ask about whether or not there is any truth to the notion that women's athletic performance is impacted by their menstrual cycles. That is to say, do the variations in the hormones throughout the cycle influence how and when a woman should structure her training, as some have led her to believe? 
To answer that question, I dug into the research and recruited a subject matter expert, and we together take a look at what evidence there is on this subject, and that's coming up right now. Medical research is the backbone upon which we base our understanding of all things related to modern-day medicine. Everything from how illness presents to how it can be diagnosed and treated is all tied to evidence obtained through years of study by researchers evaluating patients in the real world. For the most part, this kind of research has been very informative and helpful not only in undercovering previously unknown illness and disease, but also by identifying the means to diagnose and treat them. Unfortunately, though, a lot of research has been biased, for the most part unintentionally, by the scientists performing the investigations. As I've explained on this podcast several times before, in order for a research study to have validity, the researchers need to control as many of the variables as possible in order to be sure that the thing that they are studying is the one thing that any observed differences can be attributed to. The problem with this is that it has led researchers over time to make their study populations more and more uniform, such that many in medicine have begun to question whether or not the results obtained in these kinds of investigations are really broadly applicable, or if they really only apply to the people who look exactly like the subjects in the study. The reason that this question is so important is because up until very recently, for the vast majority of medical research, subjects tended to be white men. When evaluating the results of these studies, many began to question if the results would be the same if minority representation had been reflected in the study population, or if that population had been made up of 50% women, as tends to be the case in the world at large. This has led to a whole field of research to identify how women specifically are affected by things differently than their male counterparts. In the sphere of endurance sport, many prominent voices have loudly reminded us that women are not men, and therefore should be treated differently with respect to nutrition and training. And all of this leads me to the medical question to be considered for this episode, because it is one that is very much applicable only to women, and has garnered a lot of attention of late because many of the same vocal advocates for treating women differently than men say to do so based on the premise of this question. Carmen wrote to me to ask about whether or not a woman's menstrual cycle impacts her performance. That is to say, can a woman expect her ability to perform an endurance sport vary depending on where she is in her cycle? Well, joining me to discuss this important subject is Shama Patwardhan. Shama is an obstetrician and gynecologist in private practice in Partners in Women's Health here in Denver, Colorado. She's also on the board of Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Shama took up running during medical school and then tennis after having her first child, and she continues to play the latter avidly and has gone on to be an enthusiastic runner of all distances, up to half marathons, along with her husband and two sons. As part of her practice, she supports her patients in their active lifestyles for wellness and wholeness, in pregnancy and for a lifetime. But today, she's here to join me on the TriDoc podcast to answer this very interesting question. Welcome to the podcast, Shama. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So Shama, let's first begin, before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of Carmen's question, uh, let's, for the lay people who are listening, let's just go over the, you know, the menstrual cycle and the hormonal changes that take place over the course of each woman's period. If you'll join me down that path of health class um, in middle school, where you remember that 
wave-like flow chart that sort of designates the stages of uh, a woman's menstrual cycle, usually we start um, our description of, of the entire hormonal cycle by saying day one is when the menstrual flow, the period starts. Um, from there, however long that lasts, whether it be a couple days or a week, um, we go into the ovarian phase called um, the follicular phase as the follicle is starting to develop. Um, leading to ovulation, which is usually mid-cycle. And then after that, the luteal phase, um, which is the phase after ovulation until the next period comes again. Um, there are various hormonal changes that uh, are created by the ovarian environment that influence what's happening um, in a person's body as well as um, specifically what's happening in the in the pelvis and in the uterus at that time. Um, there are hormonal shifts right before ovulation. The pituitary hormone, luteinizing hormone, or LH, surges, and that's what indicates that ovulation is about to occur. The estrogen level goes up shortly before that LH. Um, and then after ovulation has occurred, the progesterone level will rise and the estrogen level marginally rises until the menstrual cycle, menstrual flow starts again, um, at which time progesterone significantly drops. Now, what the amounts of hormone um, are at these given points in the cycle, there's not a specific number, it's a range. If you were to check hormone levels on two individuals that were at the very same time in their cycle, technically, they could be vastly different, even though they're technically in, in the range that indicates where they are in their cycle. Okay. Now, in what other ways do we need to consider women differently than men that are important to take into consideration for women who are physically active, uh, training specifically for endurance sports and racing? So, I mean, some of these are going to be generalizations, right? You know, clearly, there are differences in the human body when it comes uh, to people who would have what would be considered a typically female makeup and, and what would be considered a typically male makeup. There are going to be differences in um, the amount of body fat, the differences in muscle mass, um, differences in how metabolism functions with respect to that muscle mass. Um, different changes that might occur in the perimenopause that change what a person's bone density is and realizing taking into account that there are multiple factors that contribute to this um, and multiple levels of athletic performance that have caused people of various genders to uh, have more muscle mass or have less body fat. And I want to make a, a very careful distinction. I mean, I, you know, it seems like for most of my lifetime, there's been a, a huge drive to get equality for women in sport. And I, I'm a huge proponent of that. I believe that women can do pretty much anything men can do. Uh, but this no notion that's sort of getting a lot more attention now that women are not the same as men shouldn't be taken to undermine that overriding message that women still can do whatever men can do, correct? Absolutely. And that's why it's such a complex question, right? You know, you figure um, we want to honor the fact that women's bodies are different, different than men's bodies. And how does that inform um, their performance and athletic practice? But um, also, I, as we've spoken of before, I'm very wary to have this buy into any sort of weaker sex narrative, which is untrue and 
and needs to be not perpetuated. Okay. Um, now, a lot of the researchers that have investigated uh, menstrual cycles with their relation to performance will sort of hang a lot of the research on this notion that estrogen is somehow um, anabolic in nature. Uh, this uh, theory that uh, estrogen can have effects on cells in terms of how um, those cells utilize different kinds of substrates and how those cells actually perform. Uh, this is kind of where it's come from. It's it's led one uh, very prominent female uh, exercise physiologist to say that the period is, a, is an ergogenic aid. And I, I have not been able to find any evidence to substantiate this. I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts are about that, if you're aware of any research that would suggest that estrogen is truly, or if the menstrual cycle itself can be thought of as an ergogenic aid. I've looked at it too, Jeff, to see what literature is out there. And I can't say that I see anything that definitively confirms or, or denies that um, that theory. I mean, a lot, as is true in many aspects of medicine, there are many theoretical effects um, of hormones or other chemicals in the body on the cells of the body. But the question is, what is the clinical relevance of that to the individual? And we know that there isn't one person's menstrual cycle is not the same as another's. And so it's difficult to know what the, even if you had two people that had the same exact estrogen level at a given point in their cycle, how does that individually affect them? Could be totally different. Okay. Well then let's take a look at really, I think one of the better papers that's out there on this subject. And it's a paper that both Shannon and I reviewed. Its uh, title was The Effects of Menstrual Cycle Phase on Exercise Performance in Eumenorrheic Women, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And the lead author of the paper is Kelly McNulty. And I should point out, I actually reached out to Dr. McNulty to see if she would come on the podcast. She was just unfortunately too busy. Um, but uh, I was really impressed by the work they did. And I want to just review very briefly. I've talked about meta-analyses before on this podcast. A meta-analysis is basically when you compile the results of multiple different papers and put them all together and then review all of the pooled data to generate a, a new answer. And um, there are good and bad things about meta-analyses. And this particular meta-analysis, this particular paper, really goes a long way to address some of the weaknesses of meta-analyses and I think was a, a particularly strong um, example of a good meta-analysis. And I'll, I'll explain why when we talk about some of the methods here. Um, again, uh, McNulty and her co-authors, uh, they really, you know, she outlined what the issue is talking about how estrogen is thought to have anabolic effects, play a role in altering substrate metabolism, and then also noting that progesterone is thought about as having anti-estrogen effects. And so all of this has been supposed in the past to have some potential effects on women's performance, uh, specifically in, in uh, endurance exercise. And so they pulled all of the papers they could find looking at women 18 to 40 who were not on contraceptives, who were having regular periods, and who were uninjured and therefore would be able to perform in an exercise test. And the, the, the one outcome that they were interested in was performance in an exercise test. And that particular test could vary across the different papers that they pulled. 
Now, here was where I was really impressed with uh, this particular paper, because uh, papers in a meta-analysis can vary in quality, and the authors, before they pulled any papers, were very clear that they were going to define which papers were high quality and which were low, based principally on how the women in the individual reports were determined to be where they were in their cycle. So if a paper did blood tests to actually detect hormone levels, then that was considered a high-quality study. If they looked at urine and looked at urine testing for hormones, that was considered a slightly lower quality. And then all of the, sub, all of the papers that had women purely report where they were in their cycle subjectively, so I had my period 10 days ago, therefore I must be in this point, uh, those were considered of the lowest quality. And based on all of this, they were able to compile 78 studies looking at 1,200 women. And the authors determined uh, when they pooled all of these results that there may be a trivial influence on performance during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, but no effects at any other time during the cycle. And I'll have a little bit more to say on this, but I just want to turn to Shama just for a second. Just remind us again, Shama, the early follicular phase is uh, at which point in the cycle and which hormones are dominant at that point? So early follicular phase is going to be segueing right from um, when the period is finishing. Um, and so this is prior to ovulation. So estrogen levels are low at that point, mm-hmm. correct? All right. Yeah. So the supposition based on this meta-analysis of pooled studies with 1,200 women is that there may be a trivial effect on performance during the early follicular phase, so just after the period finishes. Now, the magnitude of this difference was not consistent and varied depending on the quality of the studies, such that the higher quality studies, where they actually knew hormone levels, tended not to show much difference at all, but the low-quality studies tended to show a small difference. And so the author's main conclusion is that rather than applying menstrual cycle variations as a means of predicting performance, women should apply their own personal experience in determining if there's any such relationship. And I thought this was an incredibly measured uh, conclusion. You don't usually see such measured conclusions, especially in a study that (laughs) did so much work to gather so many papers. I was curious what your take was on it, Shama. I think it goes back to, you know, what we were saying a few minutes ago, which is that I I agree with you, the way they sorted through the meta-analysis and figured out what they would determine as a high-quality study versus one of a lesser quality. By being able to really identify truly where people were in their cycles, that helped us determine how objective um, they could be with the results. Um, But really, ultimately, taking into account the different ways that women respond to their own individual changes in their menstrual cycle and helping that inform their own uh, own plans for um, performance improvement. Uh, I mean, I, I think they came to a really, you know, sort of adequate conclusion on that, that they couldn't really take all that data and say, yes, definitively, there is a massive influence of um, menstrual cycle yeah. on Now, one of the reasons I was hoping to get Dr. McNulty was because uh, her and uh, her co-authors, they referenced a sister study that they did on a meta-analysis looking at women who used oral contraceptives. And uh, I was hoping to get some insight on, on, uh, you know, that paper because um, there are some prominent 
women exercise physiologists who uh, are very strong in their language about women not using oral contraceptives. Um, well, McNulty and her co-authors published a paper where their conclusions were that oral contraceptive use does not significantly affect muscle strength. Moreover, oral contraceptive users were not stronger or weaker than their eumenorrhea counterparts. And that flies directly in the face of some of the commentators who've been incredibly boisterous, espousing against the choice of women to use OCPs if they choose to take ownership of their own reproductive cycles. And, 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 you know, in talking to some of my female colleagues who are, uh, you know, very highly competitive triathletes, they have um, taken note of some of those comments and felt like it's not really appropriate to be commenting or making women feel bad if they want to have control of their reproductive cycle. Um, where do you come down on that, Shama? Do you feel like OCPs could potentially have an impact on performance and and should women be thinking about that if they're going to embark on taking them? I don't know of any data that shows that OCPs adversely affect performance. And I really support a woman's choice to decide how she wants to control her reproductive cycle and her menstrual cycle. You know, I think the, the flip side of all this is many performance athletes or recreational athletes don't want to have their period when they're in the middle of a triathlon if they whether it's the annoyance of having bleeding and having to deal with that versus how they know they personally feel during their periods so i totally support people using oral contraceptives if that is the right choice for their lifestyle and let's just take a moment just very briefly to talk about how uh, birth control pills work because um, it, it's worthwhile for athletes to understand not only how they work, but also that there are small uh, but still con- risks that should be considered. So could you give us a, a brief overview of how birth control pills work? Sure. So um, birth control pills, the combination birth control pill, which is generally what people are talking about when they say OCPs or birth control pills, would be a combination of estrogen and progesterone. And the idea with this combination, and typically, you know, it's 21 to 24 days of active pills that um, suppress the natural hormonal cycle, so prevent someone from ovulating. That's the first mechanism by which um, it works as a birth control pill, and secondarily, how it helps people really know exactly when um, they're going to have a period. Now, the period that people have on the birth control pill is actually sort of an artificial period. It's just what we call a withdrawal bleed. So by taking estrogen and progesterone consistently um, during the active pills, once one gets into the placebo week, that's when the withdrawal bleed occurs from the withdrawal of the hormone. Um, generally, they're very well tolerated with minimal side effects, especially because most of the pills today are very low dose in comparison to what was available decades ago. Um, but there are some risks, you're right. Um, they're unlikely, but clearly concerning to the small number of people um, that could encounter them. And that would include um, a deep vein thrombosis in the leg or a pulmonary embolism in the lungs. Um, but we're talking about a very small number of people. We're talking about a few, uh, a handful of women in 10,000, assuming that when it's been prescribed, um, a thorough history, um, the patient's history and their family history has been discerned to make sure they're not at elevated risk of those things. And more common in smokers, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. Over age 35 and smokers have a higher risk. So clearly there are other excellent options out there if the birth control pill was not the right choice. Okay. Um, I want to touch briefly on uh, women who are post-menopause and uh, just discuss if there's any issues related to performance that need to be considered in that group. Because that clearly is becoming a much larger segment of women in triathlon and in other endurance sports as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are multiple factors around the menopause that um, could potentially impact an individual's performance. Again, I don't know of specific data on it, but I would say in my own practice um, from working with women that are in that phase, I would say probably the greatest factors in an individual's performance is how well are they sleeping? Because we know that perimenopausally and menopausally um, sleep can be very disrupted, whether it's related to hot flashes and night sweats or whether it's related to just um, various metabolic activities that are occurring in the night that are disrupting sleep, um, mood changes that might disrupt sleep, that sort of thing. I personally think that, you know, there's a whole area of sleep medicine that's showing us how critical that piece is. And, and I think most people would say if they know they're not getting adequate sleep, restorative sleep, it's difficult for them to feel like they can function normally during the day from a physical and emotional perspective, but also maintain their healthy body mass um, the other factors are clearly some of the um, body changes that occur around menopause. Um, people, even high-level athletes, will notice that they tend to start to gain weight centrally. That's probably a change in how the hormones um, are fluctuating and how that affects metabolism as well as um, bone density changes, the risk of fracture, even though they're actually helping themselves maintain bone density by doing weight-bearing exercise. All important tips. Um, the reason uh, I had uh, this conversation today and uh, is because I've become aware that there are a, a whole bunch of products out there. Being a man, of course, I wasn't really aware that these are out there because they're not marketed towards me. But uh, one I came across is uh, an app called uh, Fitter Woman, F-I-T-R Woman, uh, which helps you track your menstrual cycle and provides personalized training and nutritional suggestions tailored to the changing hormone levels throughout your cycle. Based on what we've discussed today, this just seems to me to be one more example of... Um, really, uh, uh, you know, convoluting the science to fit a sales pitch aimed at women who uh, are, are unfortunately buying it and, and then uh, allowing their cycle to dictate what they can do instead of taking control and doing what they really can do because the cycle really isn't having that much of an importance. Um, I, I gather from our conversation that you would agree with this. Have you heard of Fitter Woman in the past? I have not heard of that app. Um, I would say there are a lot of apps out there um, for women to track various aspects of their cycle. You know, an example related to that would be in someone who's trying to conceive. There are apps that help people track their cycle that I'll have have people come in to talk about when the app told them they ovulated, but they haven't actually done an ovulation kit on their own. And that would be a prime example of, yes, the app may be you know, 
predicting when your ovulation is going to be based on what the last three cycles were, but unless you have objective information of actually having done a urine test for ovulation, you don't know if that's the case or not. So I, there are clearly some pitfalls in these apps um, making predictive guesses based on where one's body might be. And, you know, I'm always wary that these would become self-fulfilling prophecies for people. Exactly. Uh, my fear as well. Well, uh, doc- Dr. Shama Patwardhan is an obstetrician gynecologist here in Denver and um, offered some fantastic insights on uh, the issue of whether or not the menstrual cycle can affect female performance during endurance training and racing. Shama, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. My guest today is Michael Bowers, a longtime cyclist and triathlete since 2017. He says he's continuing to actively learn how to swim, kind of like the rest of us. He's owned the local Denver bike shop Campus Cycle since March of 2019 and continues to be a visible and well-regarded member of the cycling and multi-sport community in the area. I'm really privileged to have him joining me on the TriDoc podcast today to talk about how this very crazy year of 2020 has impacted his business and him. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michael, I know you uh, bought uh, into the shop uh, in March of last year. Uh, Looking back, maybe it was or wasn't uh, the best idea. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in a few minutes. But how long have you been in the industry? Uh, Was uh, March of last year really your foray into it, or were you involved prior to that as well? Um, actually involved prior. So I am, uh, I'm a refugee of the IT world. Um, I kind of burnt out um, in that area back in uh, around 2007. Um, I was a, an IT manager for a charter school. And uh, around March of 2007, I uh, put in my resignation and um, decided that um, I'm going to go work at this bike shop in my neighborhood for the summer while I try to figure out what my next uh, career move is going to be. Uh, that was uh, when I was officially hired as a um, salesperson at Campus Cycles. And, uh, well, I guess I, I, I never actually left. <laughs> and uh, for those uh, of my listeners who are not in the Denver area, could you just give us a little bit of a history of Campus Cycles as well as just kind of lay of the land of how big the shop is, uh, where it is in the city, things like that? Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Um, so Campus Cycles um, has been around since 1983, um, formally owned by uh, Greg and Mary Seabart, who are uh, were sort of pillars in the cycling community. Uh, Mary left us back in 2016. Uh, Greg is still with us. Greg is actually an active member um, of the Board of Directors for Bicycle Colorado. Um, Greg and Mary decided to retire from the business in 2006. Um, They sold the shop to um, Mark Vallott, my current partner, and uh, his former partner, Dylan Smith. Um, Dylan passed away in 2010 and um, Bobby Verena, a uh, longtime member of the cycling community, um, former uh, product developer for Giant Bicycles, actually. And Bobby was with uh, the shop up until I bought him out in 2019 um, after uh, relocating with his family back to uh, where he grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Um, Campus Cycles is a uh, roughly 
5,000 square foot shop. Um, we are currently a uh, Trek and Niner dealer. Uh, we also carry electric cruisers. Campus is kind of a um, sort of, I guess, a neighborhood bike shop. We're located um, on the southeast corner of Evans and Washington. So for those that don't know, we're in the, uh, we're in the um, University of Denver neighborhood, which is where the name comes from. Um, so, and like I said, we've, we've been in our current location since 2000. Um, back in the winter of 99, we actually moved from a few blocks up the street. We were much closer to the University of Denver campus. Um, a much, much, much smaller location, roughly a thousand square feet. Um, we have uh, we've more than filled out the five thousand square feet that we are currently occupying. Yeah, I'll say, and uh, that's a great, uh, that's a great concise story. And it, it's so nice to hear when your local bike shop is so ingrained in cycling. Uh, you know, uh, people who are now on the board of Bicycle Colorado, which is a local state advocacy group for cycling, and uh, really, you know, talk about you know ground up. Uh, bicycle shop. I mean, that's exactly what you guys are. You're owned by cyclists, uh, very passionate about the sport and, and bring that local sort of feel and that real cyclist feel to uh, your customers, which is why you've been around for so long, which is great. Um, now, with that being said, we, we, I think, are all aware of how online shopping has disrupted you know, brick and mortar shops over the past decade or so. Uh, was uh, Campus Cycles impacted in that way in the time before COVID? Uh, we were a little bit, we saw some, uh, we definitely saw some kind of declines in sales um, around 20, 2016, 2017, even a little bit into 2018. Um, nothing terrible, to be perfectly honest with you. We've always kind of, um, we've never, actively really been involved in any kind of like a uh, media advertising per se. Yeah. The, the, the online thing was a, a little bit for us, but not terrible. We actually do um, offer shopping online through our website. Um, so we have that, we have that capability. Um, it's not what really what we rely on. Um, we, um, the brands that we deal in, we're, we are a Trek partner store currently. Um, while Trek does help promote online. Um, Business and they actually help promote our website. There's no, um, you can't buy a bicycle from Trek or buy a bicycle from us and have it shipped to your doorstep. Um, it's all in-store pickup because we believe that making sure that the bicycle is assembled properly and fitted properly are very important aspects of the cycle experience. And um, having a having a bike that you order online and show up at your uh, up at your doorstep and hope and pray that you can put it together properly and safely or not not things that we really um, believe that strongly. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that uh, was going to be my next question. That's That's been another big disruptor for local bike shops is this direct-to-consumer sales model that a lot of uh, the newer bike manufacturers seem to have moved to. Uh, you know, I think of high-end brands like Canyon uh, that's just bypassing shops altogether. Um, and even uh, American Bicycle Group, who was on this podcast uh, just a few short weeks ago, they've uh, made a pretty successful go of being a small bicycle manufacturer that sort of cuts out the middleman. But in doing that, um, you know, really potentially deprives uh, consumers from seeing their uh, their models in shops, but then also deprives shops from the capability of getting those kinds of uh, customers through the door and and sales out uh, in the store. Um, 
you know, with that being said, uh, I'm curious how COVID upended your business. Uh, when 2020 rolled around, you clearly weren't planning for a pandemic. So once the pandemic hit, how did you guys sort of have to adapt quickly? Um, so one of the big things that we had to do was kind of, we had to, in the beginning, we had to make some certain decisions on our own to kind of um, make sure and account for the safety and well-being of not only our clients, but also our staff. Um we were very lucky in the sense that we have a very good, very strong partner in Trek Bicycles. Um, Trek has put together a just an amazing um, kind of playbook, if you will, of procedures um, as far as uh, the, um, they provided us um, with a lot of floor markings and other um, content to kind of display you know, what the rules are, how to act, where to stand when you're at the register. Um, we've kind of made our own determinations based on um, based on the square footage, the size of our store and our ventilation as far as how many people we will allow in the store at a time. We've, um, uh, we have, we've, we've set up, um, we set up kind of a tent waiting area out front for folks that are um, in to see our sales staff. Um, as well as a triage center and a um, line to bring in service customers. That being said, we are, um, from a fiscal standpoint, we're having, we're in the midst of one of the best years ever. Um, there has definitely been a cycling boom. Uh, one of the, I guess, if you will call it one of the kind of the silver linings of COVID, um, people have definitely fallen in love with their bicycles again. Um, the ability to ride your bike when other things like going to the movies or going to the basketball game, going to the gym, um, just going to the mall. When when the, a lot of those activities ceased to be a thing, um, everybody wanted to ride bikes. And so whether it be buying and, uh, you know, for, for us selling uh, bikes or helping people um, spruce up uh, bikes that have been maybe hanging in their garage for one, three, five, 10, 20 years. <laughs> it's been, it, it's been a real, you know, kind of a sort of a blessing in disguise from that standpoint. Um, we're definitely seeing a, a, a kind of a reinvigoration, a, a new love of cycling. Um, our, our big hope obviously is that, that that love of cycling will continue uh, when the world returns back to normal. Um, so we're, we're strongly, and we're doing everything in our power um, just to make sure that, you know, they see our love of the sport and that it, you know, becomes infectious. Um, that's the only infection that we're trying to pass on right now is, uh, yeah. cycling. um, so we're, um, we're, um, so it's, it's been, it's been good for us overall. In my discussion with uh, uh, the representative for American Bicycle Group, uh, they also referenced the fact that they're having a banner year. And in your uh, comments just uh, a few minutes ago, you were saying how there's kind of a mix of people buying new things, people bringing in old bikes that you're trying to spruce up. Uh, where are you seeing sort of the majority of your business? Is it in the maintenance, uh, you know, sprucing up of old bikes? Or are you actually seeing a lot of new bikes going out the door? I'll be honest with you. I haven't sat down to kind of do the the quote unquote math on it, but I'd say it's pretty evenly distributed. I mean, there were there was, there was a majority of our um, of our summer where our service department we normally try to have we, we normally try to aim for twenty four to forty eight hour turnaround um, on service bikes. Uh, we had 
we had several occasions this summer where we were four or five, six weeks out. Um, we've tried to um, make a point of scheduling reservations for folks. So that way, instead of having to be without their bike for four or five weeks, that they, when their time period comes up, they can drop their bike off the day before we get it serviced and get it back to them within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, but they still have to make those appointments three, four, six weeks out. We're down to about probably a week and a half to two weeks out at, um, at this time of year, you know, now that we're kind of approaching mid-October. Um, been very, very busy from that standpoint. We, uh, from a new bike standpoint, we were virtually sold out of inventory at one point. Um, currently have in the, we'll call it the sub $1,500 price range. I have maybe four or five bikes in stock total right now. Mm. The major sellers are at the, you know, the sub $1,500. So mostly commuters and people getting into the sport. Correct. Yeah. That's kind of our bread and butter. And we, we sold through those at a, um, at a blistering pace, March, April, and May, um, and to, to a point where not only did I not have any bikes to sell, but um, Trek didn't have any bikes to sell me. You've probably, and you've probably heard this from others, but the bike industry as a whole, not just Trek, but Trek, Giant, Specialized, Felt, um, you name it, sold a year's plus worth of bikes in the just in slightly over the first quarter of this year. So April, May, yeah. um, they were well, well over any any semblance of their anticipation of what they thought bike sales for 2020 were going to be because they were no more prepared for it than you or I or anyone, you know, or the, you know, the toilet paper industry that became, that kind of became the running joke right around May, June was that bikes have be bikes are the new toilet paper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, you talk about those lower priced bikes are, are being the first ones to go and the ones that are the most sales are. I, I consider those the gateway drugs, because when you think about N plus one, if N is zero and the first one that you get is the sub $1,500 bike, that's OK, because we all know that there still has to be more N plus one. And eventually that becomes a uh, transitions to higher end bikes. Uh, I think we've all been down that road. So absolutely. Uh, and we've actually, I'll be honest with you. We've actually seen some of that this year. We've seen, we've seen people that came in in late March, early April and bought a, you know, a $600 uh, commuter bike that they thought they were going to go out and, you know, uh, like a fitness hybrid. They, um, um I'm going to make references trails here in the front range that may not make sense to some of your listeners, but, um, they thought they were going to just go cruise the Cherry Creek or the South Platte Island Canal Trail. Um, and they did that for a couple of months. And um, see some of these people back in late July, August, um, September, buying two to $3,000, you know, higher end gravel bikes. Or, you know, they, they caught a whiff of, uh, of the potential for bike racing. They came back and were buying carbon road bikes. Um, so some of that kind of repeat business already just in this year alone. That's tremendous. I'm really glad to hear that. And uh, I know that uh, another former guest of the podcast, Trini Willerton uh, from uh, It Could Be Me, I'm sure that, you know, she's also got to be watching all of this and thinking like I am, all of these new cyclists are also drivers and having all of these people driving their cars who are now much more familiar with what it means to be a cyclist can only help our cause. Um, I want to finish up with one last question, Michael, and that is, uh, you know, you mentioned, yeah. Can I interrupt real quick with that? Um, and I wanted to thank you for mentioning her. Um, we are big fans of Trini. Um, 
In fact, we have a custom, a, a couple of different custom jerseys for sale in the shop that are actually logoed with the It Could Be Me logo. Um, Trini actually came to me uh, back um, last year and had me record a spot for her, which um, she put up on her Instagram and all that. And like we are big fans of Trini. We really love her and we love It Could Be Me. So thank you for thank you for yeah. Oh, absolutely. Promote it, promote that concept whenever I can, because I'm out there all the time fearful. Uh, I do want to finish with one last question, because you mentioned uh, some of the adaptations you've done in the shop. And I've seen that myself when I've come by to either buy something or get some uh, maintenance done. I'm just curious. I, I know that the winter is probably the slower season for your shop anyways, but how do you imagine or envision that you're going to maintain uh, the ability to still have customers you know, be able to shop and not have to stand outside in the cold. Because right now, uh, just for people who are listening and, and may not have been to the shop, when I've gone, uh, I know what I want. And I'll ask one of the salespeople, uh, they'll come out and sort of greet me and ask me what I'm there for. And because I can specifically tell them what I want, they just go get it, they process the payment inside, and then they just bring me my bag and my credit card, and I'm on my way. Uh, but you know, in the winter, that's not going to be ideal. So I'm just curious if you've given any thought to how you're going to move forward when the uh, more inclement weather comes along? Um, we're beginning to look at that already. Um, as, as you've um, so, so stated, yes, business will definitely be uh, slower when we get into those colder winter months. Um, we don't expect the kind of numbers that we've had on the sunny 80 degree days. That being said, our, our sort of implementation plan initially, so for days when it's cold, but maybe not necessarily a lot of uh, heavy, wet, white stuff falling from the sky. Um, we will still have a tent up out front, but our plan is we will have a greeter who's going to grab the customer's name and cell phone number. And we're going to have, we're going to ask that they, um, assuming we don't have room to bring them in, which I, again, don't anticipate that this is going to be a circumstance that happens very often. But on those instances where we do have um, as many people inside the building as we're comfortable with, we'll, our plan is to take a name and phone number and have them wait comfortably and warmly in their car um, and then we'll give them a call out front, outside so they can, that way they can stay in their car warm and comfortable and dry and listen to the radio or whatever it is they, um, you know, do their Facebook or whatever it is. Um, and then when we call them, we will meet them at the door and bring them directly in. Well, that's great, Mike. I'm really uh, happy to hear uh, once again from somebody within the industry how well things have gone uh, in what has otherwise been a really tragic year in so many respects, especially for all of us in the sport who have uh, seen so many things go by the wayside, um, you know, seen uh, the things that we love just be canceled, postponed, uh, on and on it goes, uh, to know that, uh, you know, the bicycle industry is thriving, uh, to know that, you uh, uh, that you and your shop is doing as well as it is. And you've really obviously given this a lot of thought. And, um, you know, that that's partly why things are going so well, because your customers appreciate that. Um, so one, um, we, we talked about some of the event challenges this year, but one of the things that I wanted to mention, um, this was our uh, this was our second year um, being involved with the Rocky Mountain Tri Club and our first year as an actual official, uh, as the official bike shop. Um, maybe not a great year for that, but... Um, one of the nice things that um, sort of fell from that, we've also been involved with uh, Racing Underground for a long time now. Um, and uh, we were fortunate enough to be involved in an event that actually took place in September. Um, Racing Underground was able to um, hold the Littlefoot Sprint Triathlon 
Um, there was a modification to the event, not because of COVID, um, so because of a blue-green algae issue at the lake where the event was taking place, so it became a duathlon. Um, but that was an event that um, that happened. Um, it happened under strict COVID protocols. It was very well done, very safely done. I was lucky enough to uh, be able to participate. My, uh, my business partner, Mark, um, worked the tech support for, uh, for the bike leg. Um, so that was an event that happened that we were really stoked about. Um, we were also sponsors of the Lookout Mountain Sprint Triathlon, another event that, again, very well done, very well um, uh, very well adhered to from a um, COVID standpoint. Both of these events took place in Jefferson County, uh, and Jefferson County um, Health Department was out observing. They had um, a number of guidelines that they put in place um, before they would allow the uh, the event permits to be issued and gave great feedback as far as the way those events were handled. Um, so I just wanted to give some people hope out there that um, – Racing may not be like we're used to, and it may be a while before it gets back to be what to, to being um, the way we're all used to. But events are still under 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 the right circumstances, under the right protocols. Events are still happening; um, they can still be enjoyed, and um, the ones that I've been involved with have been very very safe. Uh, I just wanted to put that out there as well, just because of the fact that. Um, as a shop, we're, it, it's important to us to not only just be safe inside our store, but also be safe in those things that we choose to be involved in. Well, I can't think of a better, more optimistic way to end than on that note. Uh, Michael, thank you uh, so much again for joining me today. It was uh, a fun conversation. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You can find archives of all of the shows as well as a handy collections feature where I've grouped the shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. And I hope that you'll remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you download this podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with an interview with John Mason, the head coach of the Colorado State University Triathlon team, to discuss running power meters. Are they useful or just another gadget to provide data of somewhat questionable value? Of course, I'll also have another medical question to answer. But until then, train hard, train healthy.